No, I would never. I said never for 10 years. I said, never, we will never do that. We will never do that. And then I watched other families just like ours that had to do it and it was okay and everyone is thriving and everyone is safe and it was time. Welcome to The Lisa Show, where we take a good look at life. Hey, it's Lisa. This is episode seven of our caregiving series. In keeping with a pattern that's sort of emerged this season, as we've talked about health transitions, mindset transitions, relationship transitions, today's episode is also about transition. Specifically, I want to dive into a transition in the caregiver experience, which feels like a paradox, and that's when it ends, if it ends. Richard Louie, caregiver to his parents, documentarian, and news anchor whose story we've gotten to hear pieces of in the last few episodes, he summarized this question really well. What's the after? So 53, 60 million caregivers, family caregivers in America every year. What happens after they're not in that statistic? What happens after is not something I anticipated when suddenly I stopped being in that statistic. And if I thought I knew what was coming, because some of it was obvious, my husband was dying, there was a quote-unquote end of caregiving for me, I was caught off guard when around the same time my adult kids began moving out of my house. And in a very different way, I found myself again in this after state of caregiving. And while on paper, statistically... It looks black and white. Caregiving starts and ends. That experience felt a lot more nuanced and complex in real life. In this episode, we're talking about preparing for the end. A lot of this conversation deals with death, hospice, and end of life. But as a caregiver in multiple contexts, I feel like it's a little bigger than that. Whether caregiving ends in death, recovery, empty nesting, or even if it doesn't end at all, but simply evolves into new phases, life is not the same after caregiving. Many caregivers feel the approach of inevitable change to their role and an end to the way life looks and feels right now. And because preparing for the end of one caregiving role prepared me for the gray area end of another, even though that one didn't involve death at all, I think there's something in this conversation for everyone. Let me introduce you to Barbara Carnes, an end-of-life expert with decades of experience caring for the dying. My name is Barbara Carnes. I'm a registered nurse, and I have worked in hospice, and the end-of-life arena since 1980, so many, many years. I started out as a primary care hospice nurse. Barbara described to me how over a decade and a half, she rose through the ranks as a hospice administrator and eventually to being executive director for two different hospices. And then life took a turn. My mother and stepfather were both diagnosed with cancer of the lung. And they were in a different city, and I'm, I'm working, I'm going back and forth. And by 1994, 
I decided family and taking care of them was more important than any job I could do. And so I quit my job as executive director and was a caregiver for my stepfather. When he died, I brought my mother in to live with me. And five months later, she died. And so I have taken care, you know, I've walked in a caregiver's shoes. I know this tension. I know the love that we want to give. And I know how hard it is to do that. Between Barbara's professional expertise and the intense firsthand experience of caregiving for her own loved ones at the end of their lives, Barbara knows a lot about death, especially from the caregiver perspective. And this is what she spends 90% of her time trying to teach others, because she says our current culture about death and dying leaves most of us in the dark. Let's go back to the 1800s and early 1900s. Grandma died at home. Yeah. She died in the upstairs bedroom and family was there and we watched the process and we understood that death was really a part of life mm -hmm. and that we would be involved in that. This is the first thing I want to underline from this lost knowledge that Barbara is talking about, that death is a part of life. And then our medical abilities reached a point where people ended up in the hospital and they died in the hospital and no one was there. No one saw how death happened. And from the hospital, then we've evolved to where people are in nursing facilities. And again, family often isn't there. They don't see the process. You know, you visit grandma on Sunday after church and you don't really see what's happening. Now we've come full circle and more and more people are wanting grandma to be at home and we'll take care of her. And so now it's important that we recapture the knowledge that we had in the 1800s on how grandma dies. And that's where my work comes in, is I'm trying to teach people the normal, natural way that death occurs from old age or from disease, because we lost it. And I think now we're trying to get it back. And as Barbara explained to me, when so many of us come to this situation with very little personal experience or expertise, there's a lot at stake in rediscovering this knowledge. It can mean the difference between fear or instead what Barbara wants for all her patients' caregivers, a sacred experience. My goal is to have them have a sacred experience as their loved one is dying so that they'll carry this sacred memory with them forever. Um, that's my work, my goal. Taking care of someone at end of life is different than taking care of someone who's going to get better. And so the sacred memory I'm trying to create starts with education 
with what what is going to happen to neutralize the fear that everyone brings to the bedside. And we bring that fear because we don't know what to expect. So we're scared. As Barbara described what it looks like to neutralize what can be a very natural amount of fear, you'll notice that she's recommending the opposite of what fear compels people to do. Fear makes us shrink, disengage, and put distance between ourselves and what we're afraid of. But you'll see that all of Barbara's recommendations are about getting closer. So in neutralizing the fear is how I see that we can have that sacred memory to guide families on what they can do. You know, you can crawl in bed with grandma. You can hold her hand. Here's what grandma's going to do. She's doing a good job in getting out of her body. And while she's doing that, you can talk to her. You can love her. You can hold her. And all of that experience will create that sacred memory that they'll carry with them. I have family members individually go in in the hours before death and talk alone with their loved one to talk about the good times, talk about the challenging times, and say anything you want, hug, kiss, whatever, each individual person alone. That gives them sacred time alone. And then following the death, because my work has been to be with the patient and family at the moment of death, because that's the goal. Everything leads up to the moment of death. All the work that's done before is for the moment of death, and all of the work after the death is work related to that. So that's why explaining to the family what to do, what to say, and then following the death, I encourage before the funeral home is called for each family member or significant other to go in alone and say goodbye to the body because this was the last time that you can really be there and have that special moment. It won't be the same at the funeral home. So again, it's creating these special memories that people will carry with them forever. Hearing Barbara describe these sacred memories reminds me of the hospice care team who helped us have some of these intimate moments with Christopher in the final days of his life. I am so grateful for them. As we explore this idea of neutralizing fear, especially in the face of an ending, I want to share a piece of a conversation I had with my friend Emily Campbell, who talked about loneliness and grief in episode three. You may remember that she is a caregiver for her son, Connor, who has severe nonverbal autism and epilepsy. And for her, there is no end in sight. But in Connor's most recent stage of development, Emily has been forced to confront a decision she hoped she would never have to make and one of her greatest fears. One thing that I was so deathly afraid of that I feared worse than Connor dying 
was placing him in residential care. I feared that more than anything. And I said, never, 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 never. I don't care what happens. We will never put him in residential. Especially when I was just starting to navigate this road and realizing how severe everything was, you know, because when Connor was really little, we thought, oh, by the time he's four, he'll be talking, or by the time he's six, he'll be body drained, or by the time he's 10, we'll have total seizure control. No, none of those things have happened, and they they won't. I'm, you know, I know that they won't. When I started to realize how severe his disability was, and that there wasn't going to be, like, recovery from this horrible epilepsy that he has and autism, I thought in my mind, it's okay because we're just going to take care of him forever. We'll, he'll always live with us. He'll always live at home. I will never give my caregiving duties over to someone else. I will never place him in a facility. Like I thought that when he was littler because when he was littler, it was way easier. There's quite a few Instagram accounts that I follow that have their moms with kids with special needs. And, and the accounts are super fun and they're really uplifting and I love following them. But bless their hearts, these moms have like five and six-year-old kids. And so I'm like, you're super positive and you're like, we got this, it's no big deal. And they do got this, it's great. But when their kids get to be full-grown men or full-grown adults, it's a whole different world. And I wish I would have known that when I was younger. I would have loved to have heard other people's stories that were similar to mine and the things they had to accept. Because I was pretty stubborn when I was younger, thinking we will never place him in assisted living because he's so easy. And then reality set in. He started to hit puberty and everything changed. His seizures got worse. His diapers got worse. His behavior got worse. His strength increased. And it got so much harder than I expected. And I realized, oh, that was naive of me to think that we're just going to have him at home and take care of him forever and it's going to be fine and we'll be able to do it. That is not so. Everything changes when these kids grow up. I wish I had someone sit me down and say, you are doing amazing and of course you want him with you forever. But that it, you can't sustain life, especially with someone as severe as our son is. You cannot sustain life. The lights really turned on for me. At the end of 2020, Connor's behaviors were out of control, and every day was like a five-hour-long tantrum during the day of him breaking things and hurting everyone. He broke my nose. He hurt Jacob, our son, a million times. We have had a living caregiver for like four years. He had split her face twice, you know. And at the end of 2020, it was so awful that he went in for inpatient treatment at the Neuropsych Institute in Utah. We put him there and he stayed there for a few weeks. And I was so impressed with how amazing they were and how soft and gentle everything was. And I was there every single day. I was so relieved at just the quality of the caregiving that that finally made me realize, okay, we can do a residential situation when we need to. And it was starting to dawn on me at that time that we were going to have to do that. My biggest fear, like something I had bawled about for years, I knew it was coming. And so that experience was really good for me though, to meet all the people that worked on this unit and the people that worked with kids like him, thinking I, wa I wanted to know like, why do you do this? And how did you get into this field? And how do you feel about it? And Almost every single one of them was like, oh, well, I have a nephew with autism or I have a severely disabled cousin or whatever. And so you learning about the people that were in this field and meeting the caregivers, just it changed everything for me. And I was like, okay, 
these are my people, and these are people that will get Connor, and they'll they'll take good care of him. And with that glimmer of hope, Emily approached what she was most afraid of and leaned in. I said never for 10 years. I said never. We will never do that. We will never do that. And then I watched other families just like ours that had to do it, and it was okay, and everyone is thriving, and everyone is safe. And then after our experience being inpatient just shortly for those few weeks, it changed it for me. And I realized, okay, we are all suffering. My adult daughter is suffering. Me and my husband are suffering. And especially our seven-year-old was suffering. And it was time. He's living in a residential situation right now. And it has been the biggest blessing to our family. It has been amazing. But when I was younger, you know, I mean, I was born in the 70s. So when I was little, people that were in residential care, it was a dark situation. It is not like that now. And I wish someone had talked more about this caregiving now in a residential situation or like a group home or a assisted facility, assisted living facility. The level of caregiving is so much better than it was even 10 years ago, especially, you know, 40 years ago in the 80s. It's a whole different world now. And the people that are taking care of Connor are absolutely people I would have in our house taking care of him. They are sweet and patient and they're loving and they do this because they care about people, not because they're weird. You know, they're amazing. And of course, even this transition, which loomed for so long before Emily took the plunge, is not the end. You know what? It may not be forever and that's wonderful. Connor may get out of puberty and be so chill and be back to how he was when he was younger and for sure he's coming home. We will absolutely have him at home when our other son is bigger and when Connor isn't, you know, breaking and hurting everything every day, then things will be different. Whether the transitions are sudden or gradual, it takes courage to confront the fear that comes with so much change. And in so many stories like this from caregivers that I've heard, something powerful is waiting on the other side of that fear, even in the worst case scenario. For Emily, it was the well-being of her family and especially Connor. I'd like to tell you now about an experience I had neutralizing my fear of the end. This comes from a time when my husband was dying in the very last few weeks of his life. As he got closer, his body began to shut down. As our nurses told us it would, Chris could tell it was happening. We knew that we were in the final, maybe weeks, maybe days. He needed an increasing level of care around the clock. And my son, Miles, who was 21 at the time and living at home, shared that with me. So from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m., I was at Christopher's side. From 10 p.m. to 10 a.m., Miles took over. And it was always getting harder and harder, but we were in it together. And one day, we were standing in the kitchen uh, about 9.58 or 10.03, one of those rush conversations as we sort of passed the baton so the other could sleep. Miles said, oh, I think I found an apartment. And he said it so casually, and he was really excited, like it was good news. But it, to me, came out of nowhere. He had never really mentioned it before. I didn't even know he was planning on leaving, let alone looking. I thought maybe I'd heard him wrong. I hadn't. And I was too stunned, especially in the moment, to answer. I was paralyzed by a hundred of anxious thoughts. I just thought, but why now? I mean, this is when I need you the most. Have you reached the level that you can't do this anymore? Am I suffocating you? Am I making it worse? If I pry or if I ask about it, what am I missing? There could not have been a worse time for him to go. And I thought, 
oh, of course, like I'm losing him, I'm losing my husband. It felt like my family was just disintegrating. And I thought, is this how we fall apart? Is this just how it is from now on? And even describing out loud the thoughts that I was having, I know it sounds dramatic, but that's how anxiety works. This overwhelming recursive fear. And it kept me from asking Miles any questions about it for several days. I thought, maybe he just needs to focus on his own mental health right now. And so I avoided it and I was in physical pain every time I thought about it. But then I knew I needed to be the grown-up and my emotional habits kicked in from the work of preparing myself and our family for Chris's death. This now hardwired habit of confronting my worst case scenario, no matter how scared I felt, sort of ripping the Band-Aid off because it's the only way that I could really be there for Chris and not have any regrets. So I was still very afraid of the answer, but tried to play it cool and I asked Miles, of all the times to get ready to move out, why now? And what he said transformed my feeling of impending doom to a very quiet, tender recognition of a very sacred moment. Miles, who was spending all of his time and energy and thought, I mean, really his whole life at this time was revolving around taking care of his dad. He wanted his dad to see that he was going to be okay, that he was going to move on, that he could still be 21 years old and go to college and be independent and happy. And we didn't have to worry about him. He wanted his dad to see. And so he was excited to tell his dad he had found an apartment. My first preference still wasn't for Miles to leave. I mean, I felt desperately more attached than ever, especially in my own individual grief. I wanted all my babies close. I wanted us to be under one roof and comfort each other and not think about everyone else moving on. So while we experienced this big wave of transition for our family, we could be together. I wasn't sure how I could cope with the change of both of these caregiving roles that were ending and evolving so suddenly overlapping each other. But with that fear removed, when I realized this is part of life, this is a good thing, a natural, inevitable part of life that included something sacred to remember and cherish. Miles got his apartment. His dad saw him do it. It meant so much enclosure to Miles in a way that I had never considered before. Now, I've taken us a little bit of track here, but the point is that fear can be neutralized and gotten to on the other side. And as Barbara Carnes so beautifully described, when we lean in and we get closer instead of giving into fear during painful transitions, it is an opportunity to have a sacred experience. They're often waiting on the other side. Now, I want to look at what happens in the aftermath of these big ending transitions. We mentioned how statistically, on paper, caregiving is a checkbox, yes or no. But even if caregiving, quote-unquote, ends suddenly, that transition can take quite a bit of time. One of the things I vividly remember is not knowing what to do with my hands. I felt this uneasy restlessness just sitting on my own couch trying to watch TV. The instincts which say that my husband needs me, the constantly alert mindset, that doesn't go away just because something changes on paper. And I was talking about this with Elizabeth Miller, a certified caregiving consultant and founder of Happy Healthy Caregiver, whose professional and personal experience in caregiving for several members of her family has made her intimately familiar with how quickly the role can evolve and the whiplash that often comes with those transitions. 
I've always been a caregiver in some shape or form. I have an older brother who has a developmental and intellectual disability. My parents needed chronic, had chronic health issues my entire adult life. But in 2014, things really started spiraling out of control for my husband and I. We found ourselves in what we call squeezed in the sandwich generation. So you're squeezed between caring for kids. And at the time, our kids were in middle school and caring for aging parents. We were doing this simultaneously. My husband was caring for his mom who had lung cancer. And as I said, I had my parents had chronic comorbidities. What is chronic comorbidities? Well, like affectionately, I call them a cocktail of different things. They had sleep apnea, COPD, depression, diabetes, mobile issues, all kinds of different things, heart disease and psoriasis. It just felt like it was one thing after another that we were learning to navigate. Long story short, my dad passed in 2014. My my mother-in-law also passed in 2014. And I became a primary caregiver for my mom who moved to the Atlanta area from Florida and had to figure out how to navigate that for a while. And then we transitioned care to my sister. So then it became a, a long distance or remote caregiver. My parents are both now deceased and I'm a support caregiver along with my siblings for my older brother, Tom. For Elizabeth, change came in the form of multiple transitions until the death of her parents and mother-in-law. She and I talked a lot about the strange feeling that happens in the after phase and why there's more to it than just the grief of losing a loved one. There's so many mixed emotions in that because you're grieving the loss of the vessel of a person and then you've lost your job, so to speak, your role of being a caregiver. So it's like, you know, the top five stressors of life are usually like, yeah, a loss of somebody, a loss of a job. And it's a big role that you dove into and we're doing every day. And then you're grieving the life that you thought you were going to have together. So, you know, then it's like you're trying to kind of pull it all together and make it all work. And you still have the responsibilities. I just felt like I wanted to just press pause on the world and just be like, okay, world, like I'm going to need a couple weeks to catch my breath here. Can you just stop moving? That feeling of wishing the world would stop spinning, of feeling this intense grief, but also not being able to stop for it because there are other people who still need you. This experience is so familiar. Elizabeth introduces a term here, which I really appreciate as a name for people in this particular phase of caregiving. As part of the certified caregiving consultant training, we do distinguish that after caregiving stage as a very clear stage of of being a family caregiver. We call it a Godspeed caregiver, and we spend time on it because it is something that it doesn't just go away in a year. And grief is exhausting. Like there's just the tasks that go along with it is, is like, You know, and I remember after my dad died and we had, you know, mom stuff, like it was, we didn't, I don't even think I ever really grieved him. A Godspeed caregiver is navigating their grief and identify it in the after phase of caregiving. And it can really take your breath away just how quickly life changes to fill in the gaps. You'd think there would be downtime when this enormous responsibility evaporates into thin air. That's not the case. Elizabeth and I talked about how weirdly it felt like there wasn't enough time to grieve. That's something we're going to come back to a little later. 
I'd like to bring in John Sovak, licensed marriage and family therapist and dear friend of the show. He explained a little bit of the emotional transition that Godspeed caregivers or anyone going through the loss or painful change of a caregiving role may experience. So I think the thing that's so challenging when we've been caregiving, especially when we've been doing it for a while, is that we're going through two different types of, 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 of loss. We're going through the loss of the person that we were caregiving for, and we're also going through a loss of our identity as a caregiver. And this is a really difficult thing when you pile them on top of each other. Because when you're used to being a caregiver, there are certain patterns that develop in your life. There's a way you live your day. There's a way you manage each and every moment of the person you're doing the caregiving for. And so when you lose that pattern, it's so easy to lose your identity and you're grieving the loss of the person and also grieving the loss of your identity as a caregiver. And I think people aren't really aware of that part of the process. Separating these two types of grief makes it easier to look at them individually. We're grieving the person we love and we're grieving a part of ourselves, a purpose and a job that was precious even when it was so difficult and exhausting. Letting go does not happen quickly or automatically. But John shared an amazing tip that I want you to hear, something that did a lot for him after his own caregiving phase, quote-unquote, ended. There's another aspect, too, and this is going to sound so simplistic, but I really think it's important for someone, when your caregiving period is over, to actually get some body work done to go and find a really good trusted massage therapist, an energy healer, an acupuncturist, someone who can get in there and help address both the trauma that your body's gone through in the process of lifting people up and moving things and taking on aspects of physical care, but also a place where your body can be nurtured. I know for myself, you know, I was a caregiver for my mom and I got some body work done afterwards and it was amazing because I actually broke down and was crying on the massage table because there was so much stuff locked up in my muscles. And once again, this is not, not something people often think about, but I would really encourage anyone when the transition has happened and you're not in the caregiver role to get some body work done to help you reconnect into your body again. This is advice I've heard from other caregivers as well. That therapy in a physical format, whether that's acupuncture, a massage, it really helps to unlock and process the extreme wear and tear that happens on your body when you are caregiving. Crying on the massage table is actually kind of common. John explained why. Basically, as a caregiver, you've been living in a trauma-based experience for quite a long time. And all of these moments of anxiety when you make up in the middle of the night and hear one of the beeps or alarms going off, or the person rustles in the distance and you're like, are they okay? Are they okay? And all of these cues are going into your body. And these are trauma-based responses. Your adrenaline, your cortisol's like way up and it's an ongoing basis. You know, I, lack of sleep is happening. I, I remember my mom would, yes, I gave her the bell. I'm sorry, I gave her <laughs> one. did, no, not the bell. <laughs> and she would ring the bell like Aww. at two in the morning, at five in the morning, at seven in the morning, and I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't getting the rest that I needed. So all of these things add up into your bodies and the massage thing can really help release it. It was fascinating for me because the point where I went into tears was when they started working on my hands 
And if you think about that in the caregiver's point of view, that is that place of offering. That is that place where we are doing the most giving. And it was a really like powerful and beautiful experience to feel that release. Caregivers know what their hands have been through. I think this advice is so beautiful and so important. Just like caregiving is a physical experience, finding yourself and your best health in the after phase is going to require physical work to help your body find its new normal. John also has some wise advice for the emotional challenges of this caregiving transition as well. So some things that show up that I found nobody talks about until you're actually in the middle of it is sometimes there will be guilt did I do enough? What if I had that one time? What if I had listened to that thing? Carries a lot for people, especially after we've moved out of that caregiving role. The other thing that comes up too, and this is the, this is the one that nobody talks about, it's the anger. Um, a lot of people feel anger, first of all, at the loss of the person, sometimes at being put in that position of having to be the caregiver. And because we're told that it's not okay to express that anger, it gets trapped inside. And I know for myself, having someone that I could say to, it was actually my mother-in-law um, because she had taken care of her mom. And I said, this is so unreasonable. I'm so angry right now that I'm in this role and I'm so angry right now that I can't do more. And she said, yeah, I went through that too. And the more we openly talk about this caregiving process and talk about the anger and the guilt, those are things that can really help free everyone else because you're not supposed to feel that way. I'm not supposed to be angry about this, this transition. I'm not supposed to be angry about this. I'm supposed to be blessed. I'm supposed to be like they're in a better place. And I'm just like, no, anger is a very real thing. And that is a, po a point where having either a group, um, a lot of hospitals have caregiver groups that you can get support in. I think that's really important for people to know that resource. Or find a therapist that you can talk to and really address these feelings of anger and guilt that might be showing up in this transition period as a way to really help open up your mindset to release some of that. Because here's the thing that I would tell you as a mental health professional, it is never bad to have these feelings, it is bad to try and stuff them down and shut them off. That's where we get in trouble because then we carry them with us for much longer than we need to. But if we can find places that are warm and comforting and can receive these emotional stories, we can then clear ourselves and move on to have more powerful experiences. Very well said. I think sometimes we feel that, oh, I'll carry this so that no one else has to, you know, and it's kind of that martyr, like, I can't express this anger or these feelings because I don't want to, you know, pass that on. But having a safe place to do it is so much easier in the long run, you know, and instead of having that anger spill out in other ways or just stay stuck inside. It's, and that's the thing. It will spill out in it other will. ways. Yeah. It will spill out in you being unkind to the very people around you trying to help you, whether it's kids or other family members. It'll show up in you having road rage. It'll show up in you actually being very, very tired and exhausted. Oftentimes when we're holding on to emotional overwhelm, our body will shut down. And we're like, why can't I move? Why am I so tired? It's because we, we have unprocessed emotional baggage that we're holding on to. And think of that baggage, weight on our shoulders, a big backpack of anger and guilt and all of these feelings. How are we supposed to walk through a day? We go in with someone who can help. We remove one brick at a time and then the load gets lighter. One brick at a time. 
I had to ask John while we were talking about it how this applies to some of the transitions in caregiving that feel like an ending even if they're not related to death. For me, it's been unsettling and a little painful when my kids left home. I don't know what they're doing as often. I can't influence their choices, and it seems like it should be right of the mill because billions of parents have done this exact same thing. But it's a big caregiving transition that comes with its own set of leftover worries and impulses. John gives some advice for conversations parents can have with their kids as they navigate this unfamiliar emotional territory. Well, I think it goes back to the basics of communication. If you've got a kid going away to college, you are allowed as a parent to say, this is a transition. You and I are going to talk. I'm going to cry. You're going to know how much it means for me to have you going away. And what John is about to say here is something I've thought about many times since he said it. And as I always say, especially with moms, more so than any other parent, there is this beautiful umbilical cord of light that has you connected to your kid no matter where they are in the world. And this is something moms have, and no dad will ever (laughs) understand it, but it's a beautiful, powerful thing. And I think it's important to recognize that and to be able to say to your kid, look, I'm going to be occasionally unreasonable, especially in these first few months. I'm going to check in on you more than you think you should. You're going to get pissed at me because I'm texting you all the time. And that's just my contract as a mom. When I gave birth to you, that's what I agreed to do for your lifetime. So you got to deal with it. I love that. And I think it's so important to once again, recognize it's a transition and let everybody involved in the transition have some space and a moment to really share about what it means to it. Because here's the secret too, your kid's not going to tell you this, but they're freaking out about that transition as well. Because you're not going to be there when they come home and they've had a rough day and you give them that kind of just warm, comforting space. They're freaking out too. They're not going to tell you they're freaking out, but it's happening. (laughs) It's, It's happening. I love that. I want you to remember this image John introduced, the umbilical cord of light. We're going to come back to it in a moment. I want to highlight something else here too that caregivers need extra support in this phase. They need to process their grief. They need to talk about it. But as Elizabeth Miller and I noticed, as we reflected on what life looked like after the deaths of the people we were caring for, sometimes it felt like there wasn't time to grieve, or the presence of grief was so overwhelming that there was almost this impulse to avoid it. The clamor in our heads pushing us to take care of someone led us to hyper-focusing on our kids, our other family members, making sure that they were okay. It's a coping mechanism to just kind of stay busy. Women staying busy is like... And I'm good at being busy, like it's a virtue, which, by the way, it's not. Yeah. Feel the feels, for sure. Staying busy, like Elizabeth Miller said, is a coping mechanism that feels all too natural to rely on, especially when it keeps us from feeling the feels, which is exactly what we need in order to begin the healing process. John Sovic brought up this, too. Elizabeth and I are not alone here. For me, the number one thing that I talk about people in a grief process is every single one of us grieves differently. There's no right or wrong way to do it. You are going to have your own journey of grief. I will suggest that most caregivers that I've worked with initially will go into what we call the busy phase. Oh, I've got to cross the T's and dot the I's and return to the hospital bed and make sure the services are done. And then I have to send out the thank you cards for everyone who attended. And then I have to follow up and do the finances and do all of this stuff. Caretakers are notorious for avoiding their grief and going into the busy phase. Here's the thing. When the busy phase is done after about four months, 
you're going to crash and you're going to be flooded with all of the grief that you've been avoiding. So if in the middle of that busy phase, you can still give yourself some time, some space to grieve, to let go, as we mentioned earlier, to let go of your identity as a caregiver, but also to be willing to, with blessed energy, let go of that person that you were caregiving for so long. Give yourself some time and some space. And if anybody tells you you should be over it or through it, whether it's one year, two years, three years, 10 years, you can tell them, no, I'm still grieving this and it's okay. And that is a process. No matter who or what we are grieving, a parent, a sibling, a child, a spouse, that connection never ends, even when they transition out of our care. I've struggled to use the word end in this episode, or at least I put it in quotes, because the paradox in the end of caregiving is that it doesn't. We are not the same. It's okay if we don't feel the same. John talked about this. We keep that person in our heart. We keep them in a beautiful little space inside our heart. But our heart grows bigger, our world grows bigger, and the grief becomes less overwhelming. Elizabeth talked about this. Once you're a caregiver, you're always a caregiver in my book. Richard Louie is a CNBC anchor, and he's a caregiver. And he spoke, and he said something that has stuck with me. He said that caregiving is like being an astronaut. Richard Louie talked about it, too. The quote that Elizabeth is about to share is something we referenced briefly a little early in the series, but it really is just that good. So I want you to hear it again in his own words. You know, if astronauts go to the moon, if they get in that spaceship, they pick their crew, they have emergencies, they've got an air leak, they've got to stop at the space station before they get to the moon, they turn around, they finish their mission, they come on back, their crews with them, and they land back on Earth. They did something amazing. And for the rest of their lives, they're called astronauts. No matter where they go, when I interview them on air, they were an astronaut 30 years ago. Astronaut Lisa Clark joins us now. Oh, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. Yeah. Caregivers are astronauts. I mean, don't you feel after that, you're a better human? We're better at being a human. How about that? That's safer to say. <laughs> We're better at being a human. We're forever a caregiver. We forever have those skills and we should not push them away. This is what I'd like to end on here. Like Richard Louis said, we've done something amazing, and we're going to carry that with us forever. For those of us who are parents, the umbilical cord of light will always connect us to our children, no matter where they go or what they do. For those of us experiencing loss or change as the result of death, it's so obvious that love does not fade, even if life does. Grief and endings, always in quotes, are a part of every caregiver's journey. It's weird, it's painful, it's natural to try to avoid the feelings, to stay busy, to bury yourself in the minutia of other people's needs when these kinds of transitions happen. But I would like you to consider instead to lean in. There is so much growth and healing and beauty and self-discovery that happens after caregiving. In the face of our fear of loss, of change, 
and of transition, you will find something sacred on the other side. The Lisa Show is a production of BYU Radio, hosted by Lisa Valentine Clark and produced by Becca Hurley and McKay Menden with help from Avery Stonely, Blake Morse, and Michael Combs with music and post-production by Josh Fouts. Emily Campbell is a friend of the show and you can find more episodes featuring her on our website. Richard Louie is a news anchor, author, and filmmaker. To learn more about his work, check out richardlouie.com. That's richardlui.com. You can watch his documentary about caregiving, Unconditional, on Amazon Prime. Barbara Carnes is a registered nurse and the author of By Your Side, A Guide for Caring for the Dying at Home. Learn more at bkbooks.com. Elizabeth Miller is a certified caregiving consultant and the founder of Happy Healthy Caregiver, a top 10 caregiving blog and podcast. Learn more at happyhealthycaregiver.com. John Sovek is a licensed therapist, author, and speaker. You can learn more at johnsovek.com. That's John, S-O-V-E-C.com. Links to all of our guests, their websites, books, podcasts, and Instagrams will be up on our website on the episode page so that you can check them out and follow their work. To connect with us about this episode, please join our listener community on Facebook. We'll be hosting additional conversations there with more opportunities to share and find resources. 